As you're turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, it has been, I believe, about six weeks since we have been in Romans 14. We're in this series of messages through Romans 14 and 15 entitled, Unity, Liberty, Maturity, How Christians Can Learn to Get Along with One Another. And this is part seven in that series with the last two parts dealing specifically with Romans 14 verses 13 to 23 and the subtitle as you see in your Lord's Day bulletin, Dealing with Stumbling Blocks and Offenses. And even though we have been able to complete Romans 14 verses 13 to 23, in that second part of the series of messages that I have preached here, I thought that since it has been six weeks, and since I would no doubt be taxing your memories just to simply move on, I wanted to see if I could do something by way of a bridge, a bridge message between Romans 14 and Romans 15, but of course just prior to moving in next Lord's Day, to Romans 15:1. And I think this bridge message might be helpful. I hope it will also be very practical for you as you think about all of these things related to the gray areas of the Christian life. That's surely the context of Romans 14:1 through chapter 15, verse 13. Paul is addressing in the church at Rome the issues related to areas that are neither black nor white, right or wrong, in and of themselves, they are gray, as we would say. They are areas that are not in and of themselves sinful, wrong, and they are not areas that we would automatically say are right or best. And so, there is much work we have to do in understanding this portion of Scripture because it is, frankly, often misunderstood and not much taught on. And so I think it would be well for us to continue to meditate and think upon these areas of the Christian life so that we might continue to work with one another in the body of Christ. And as I have been meditating on Romans 14 and 15, both by way of reading these texts over and over and over again and also listening to them in my car and thinking about them and trying to mull over all of the truths, I found some interesting realities tucked within the verses of this passage that I think could help us. One of the ways that I think Christians ought to be able to think through the areas of our Christian liberty is to think through the issue of our Christian virtues and how Christian virtues can intersect with our liberties on how to treat one another and how to pursue our liberties, our freedoms in Christ. And one of the interesting things that I found in Romans 14 and 15 was the famous Christian triad of virtues that we call faith hope, and love. Now, it might not be immediately noticeable to you, but to me, there are those three 
Christian virtues, the triad, as we say, of faith, hope, and love tucked within these verses that I believe may give us a key to understanding how to guard against the use of our Christian liberties. In other words, one of the ways that you can begin to determine whether or not a particular liberty, an area of freedom that the Bible neither commends or condemns, is to ask yourself the question, can I pursue this liberty and still be able to pursue faith, hope, and love. Now, of course, there are many other virtues of the Christian life. We have the fruit of the Spirit, of course, listed for us in Galatians chapter 5. There are many, many other Christian virtues other than faith, hope, and love. But it seems as though the Apostle Paul loves this triad. He loves to talk about faith, hope, and love. And of course, as you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he mentions faith, hope, and love abiding. The greatest of these is love. Well, guess what? He does, in one sense, the same thing right here in Romans 14 and 15. And I would say that these three Christian virtues will, in fact, help you guard against the abuses of the liberties that you have in Christ to pursue in front of other Christians. What do I mean by that? Well, look back at Romans chapter 14. And as I said, this can be a set of principles that will bridge us between chapters 14 and chapter 15, chapters 14 and 15, and then next Lord's Day, Lord willing, I'll begin the exposition of chapter 15, verses 1 and following. Look back at chapter 14, verse 13. Notice what he says. And I'm going to point out that there are three times he uses the word stumbling or stumbling block or hindrance. And tucked within that kind of context, he's going to talk to us about love. The first of the Christian triad of virtues. Verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now we talked about that in great detail. And he's simply saying, don't pass judgment, don't be critical of another person's liberty on what they're choosing to do, or don't allow the process of the judgment to be passed to you, including the possibility even of giving up your liberty, because you would rather decide, Paul says, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. That is, of course, food. That's what he's talking about. That's the context. But, he says, it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And then he reiterates this idea of stumbling once again in the next verse, verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So three times he's mentioning this idea of stumbling or placing an offense or a hindrance or a barrier in the way of a brother. The first reference in verse 13 is in the context of passing judgment. In verse 20, it's in the context 
of not destroying the work of God. And in verse 21, it is the more unqualified statement, or do anything, including food and drink, that causes your brother to stumble. And you know the way that we can tie all of those together under this category of not causing a brother to stumble? Paul says the way that you can know that you can pursue liberty in Christ yet not be hurting your brother is to love him. And that's what he says. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in what? Love. There's that word. That's the Christian virtue of love. You see, if you ever have any doubt about whether or not something that you're actually free in Christ to do, to pursue, is potentially going to hurt another brother or sister in Christ, is to ask yourself the question, what would love do? What would love do? My family and I this week in our family worship read Jesus' own golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's love. That's another way of talking about love. If you want something from someone else, if you want to treat them in a certain way, you look at the way you want to be treated. You look at the way you want to be loved, and you turn around and you love them and treat them in that similar way. That's the golden rule. That's love. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying in the universal sense, even transcending the issue of food and drink, even though that's specifically and primarily the context here, he opens it up clearly to us in verse 21 by saying anything. You you love your brother in every way that you possibly can, no matter what we're talking about in these Christian liberties, and you do so because you want to love them, you want to care for them, And if you know you're doing something for which your brother is grieved, you're no longer walking in love. He even says in verse 19, So then let us pursue peace, mutual upbuilding. You see, it's all coming through the grid of love. That's what I want to do. If I have areas of my Christian life that I know are free, I know I can do them. I know there's no constraint. I know there's no condemnation. Even though I know there's no particular commendation either. So therefore, I'm going to be very skillful. I'm going to be very careful so that I can pursue loving my brother. And if he has something for which I know if I do, he'll be grieved, then love constrains me to step away from that, not to do that, to refrain from that, because I don't want my brother grieved. I want my brother not to be grieved more than I want to do the action. I, I want my, my brother not to be grieved more than I want to do the action. This is, this is an idea that says, I'm loving my brother. I'm coming alongside him. And he clearly gives us that concept of love. Secondly, notice chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. And here's the second of the triad of Christian uh, virtues, and that's faith. 
Look at verse 22. The faith that you have, and clearly when he talks about faith here, he's not just talking about faith in Christ. He's not talking about salvation kind of faith, although that's obviously implied. The faith here might even be a way that we could define as confidence or convictions. The convictions that you have, the faith that you have, the confidence that you have that you're free in Christ to do certain things in the gray areas, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, you're free in Christ to do certain things. You have to determine what those are. And if you have confidence to do those things, your own conscience isn't convicting you for some reason. Your own heart isn't passing judgment on yourself for what you're approving that you can do. He says, that's okay. Keep between yourself and God. I'm free to do that. But, verse 23, whoever has doubts, doubts about whether that gray area is, is truly being able to function in his life, if he has doubts, and if he's condemned if he eats, that's primarily what he's talking about here, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's the second listing of that Christian triad of virtues. Faith, love, and faith. If you have confidence that you can do something that God's Word does not tell you you can do or can't do, then you have the freedom to do it. But if you are the kind of person that has doubts about that certain gray area, and if you start eating a certain kind of food, or if you start doing a certain kind of thing in the Christian life, and you seem to be convicted or challenged or your confidence level is shaken, then you better not do it. You better stay away from it. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, for you, that particular thing, whatever it may be, really moves into the category of sin for you. And you see, that's a very important concept in the Christian life. Because clearly there are some things that Christians believe they can do and the Word of God would not specifically condemn them in that action. But there are other Christians who with the very same action would say about themselves, I can't do that. That's not right for me. Uh, My conscience is pricked when when I even think about doing such a thing, let alone doing the action. I, I, I just cannot do it. And Paul says, here's the principle if, if, if you have doubts about that particular thing, then it's not from faith. You don't have that confidence before God. And if that's true, whatever does not proceed from faith, that confidence, for you that is sin. And so don't do it. Stay away from it. Which means then that our confidence before God, our faith in Him, our dependence upon Him is extremely important in this matter of gray areas. Which means, by the way, that if you're a person who is trying to convince another Christian that they should do an action, they must do an action that they're not commanded to do but not condemned to do, and you're pushing them toward that action either by your activity in their life, sometimes even flaunting it in front of them, or you're trying to push they themselves into that action, 
And they're sheepish about it. They're concerned about it. They have doubts about it. You're pushing them into sin. Because for them it is sin. And so for your faith, you may be able to do such a thing. And if that's the faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the person who has no reason to have a hang-up about it. That's my translation. That's not exactly what it says. But if you don't have a hang-up about it, then do it. But if it crosses the line into a place where your brother sees your actions and he's grieved about it, then you're not walking in love. And if you're trying to get him to do the same action because it's not forbidden in Scripture, he's going to have a problem with it because he's got doubts about it. And if he has doubts about it, it's not proceeding from faith. And if it's not proceeding from faith, it's a sin. It's a sin for him. Not necessarily a sin for you. Although it could be a sin for you if you flaunt your liberty in front of him and tell him that he's got all kinds of hang-ups about it and that he shouldn't because it's not really forbidden in Scripture. And you know what you're doing? You're going to twist his conscience into a very tightly wrung thing. And he's not going to go know what to do. And he's going to have even greater doubts. And you've got to be very, very careful about doing such a thing. You know what you rather should do? Is to say, you know what? If that is your current faith, confidence, dependence upon God, if that's where you currently are in your Christian life, I'm going to be very patient with you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm not going to do anything in my own actions that's going to cause you to stumble or to be a hindrance in any way to where you are in your Christian life. Because we're supposed to be unified. We're supposed to be walking down together this path in the Christian life in these gray areas. And I don't want to be a stumbling block for you. And I don't want to be the person who leads you by the hand into sinful actions for which your conscience is bound. That's faith. Thirdly, hope. Hope. Love, faith, and hope. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, notice this, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have, what? Hope. There's our third Christian virtue. There's the triad. Love, faith, and hope. All in the same passage. Forget about the verse designations and forget about the chapter designations. They're, they're put onto the text. This is all just one subsection of Paul's writing to the Romans. No, no chapter break there particularly. It's love, faith, and hope. And he's got them in the same passage. And he's talking here about how you can work your way through the gray areas, including one of those ways is the encouragement, the endurance that you can receive through the Scriptures, which give you hope. And then he says, verse 5, May the God of endurance 
and encouragement, the same one who gives you encouragement and endurance through the Scriptures, would grant you to live in such harmony with one another. You see how hope and harmony go together in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you want to see hope listed more, notice what he says, that Christ, according to verse 8, became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, and to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, verse 9, so that they too, these Gentiles, might glorify God for His mercy that He came to them as well. And then notice verse 12. Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Verse 13. May the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You know what I think Paul is doing? He's weaving in and through this discussion of the gray areas of the Christian life three major Christian virtues, maybe the three greatest Christian virtues, love, faith, and hope, and he's giving us a key, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, and he's telling us this. There are going to be a million different ways that you could express your liberty in Christ. Well, maybe not a million. I know I've told myself a million times not to exaggerate. Maybe there aren't a million, okay? But maybe there's 147,000. And if there are so many, a myriad of ways that there are ways for you and I to express our liberty in Christ, there are probably a multitude of ways then that we could abuse that liberty with our Christian brothers and sisters. And so how do we guard against abusing our liberties in these multitudes of ways? You know what Paul's answer is? Love, faith, and hope. It's it's the universal set of Christian virtues that allows us to have the broad parameters to determine how I can respond to my brothers and sisters in the body. If you ask me the question, how can I work toward not making myself a stumbling block for others? Walk in love. If you ask me how I can come to a place of not trying to tempt my brother or sister who's doubting about that particular aspect of their liberty in Christ. They don't yet see it. I ask God to grow them in their faith. And with my faith and dependence, I don't have to before God convince them of anything. God can do that. I can trust Him for that. Can you trust that there are people in the church who are at various levels of Christian maturity And that God, by trusting Him, will know the right time and the right season and with the right way mature these believers in Christ? Of course, I can trust God for that. I can trust God to mature them in Christ. The main way I can do so is because I've seen Him allow me in my necessary areas of dependence to be given time and effort to trust Him and grow and mature in my own Christian life. And do you know how we can see how to work our way through the gray areas of the Christian life? To know 
that behind it all is the desire of God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior to provide in the one church, both Jew and Gentile, so that even with very disparate peoples, God will allow us as one voice to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ no matter how different we are and no matter how different backgrounds we have come, God will allow us to be unified as a body. Why? Because we hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the one thing for which we can be unified. Praise God. Hallelujah. There is, there is a lot to say, my friends, and I wish I had more time to say it, about faith, love, and hope. I, I, I cannot impress upon us the duty of the Christian to live out faith, hope, and love in the midst of trying to figure out how to express my liberties in Christ. That's the key. That's the key to it all. Now, somebody might say at this particular point, but how? You, you said this sermon was going to be practical. All right? Here's what I want to do. I want to give you And this has been so helpful to me throughout the years. I've sort of, in my own mind, tried to summarize ways that I can serve other people by thinking of four terms that the Bible gives us. And I believe these four terms can help us determine how we serve others in the body of Christ and exhibit faith, hope, and love, especially in the context of their liberties and ours. Okay? And here are those four terms. Servant... Slave, subordinate, and sacrificer. Okay? Servant, slave, subordinate, and sacrificer. See, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it does. I promise you it does. In the context of Romans 14 and 15 and in other places in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul either speaks of himself or the Romans with one of these terms or all of these terms, depending on the context, in such a way that he tells them who they are and who they're supposed to be by those terms. And beloved, if you see those terms as resident within your life, you will be way down the road in accepting people in their liberties and they yours. It's very, very simple. If I'm a servant, if I'm a slave... If I'm a subordinate, if I'm a sacrificer, I'm the kind of person who isn't going to flaunt my liberty. I'm the kind of person who isn't going to twist somebody's own faith or trust in Christ my way. I'm going to be patient with them. And I'm going to see a hope that God is going to join all of us to glorify Him in this unity in the midst of our diversity. If I do, it's going to be because I see my life as a sacrifice And I see myself as a subordinate. It's very, very clear. Notice how Paul uses some of the terms. Look at chapter 15, verse 8. This is that word servant, diakonia. And notice what he says. He gives us an example, the preeminent example, of course, of Jesus Christ. And he says, backing up maybe before I give you verse 8, look at at verse 1 again of chapter 15. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us please 
his, let, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then notice the preeminent example, verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The preeminent example that Paul gives for us to bear with the failings of the weak is Christ because Christ did not please himself, but he pleased God. And then notice how he described the person of Christ in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant, a diakonos, to both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Circumcised, verse 8, Gentiles, uncircumcised, verse 9. And he uses that very specific word, diakonos, Christ became a servant. Do you know that in your Christian life, one of the ways that you cannot be hung up on somebody else's liberty is to be a servant to them? There are a lot of people I've found in the Christian community who have major hang-ups about things they see other Christians doing that they believe they're not at liberty to do or they have a problem with that person and their liberty. And they think about it and they mull it over and they get angry and they get upset. And in the midst of all of that, guess what one of the major issues is going on? They're not thinking of how to serve that person. They're not thinking of the preeminent example of their Savior, Jesus Christ, becoming a servant to bring both Jew and Gentile together. Christ became a servant, diakonon. That that is a word I wish we had time to pursue all over the New Testament. We don't. But in the book of Romans, within this very context, if you want to know how Christ was able to be the Savior of two very different groups, Jew and Gentile, who obviously has have all kinds of differences in how they pursue the Christian life now that they're in Christ. How do they do it? What's the standard? What's the bar? It's Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Christ became a servant. That's right in our text. Secondly, slave. Look at Romans 1.1. This, of course, is very familiar, Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Recently in the Expositor's Seminary's inaugural chapel, you heard Pastor John MacArthur mention this idea of the word slave. And unfortunately, in the English Standard Version, and maybe in yours as well, this particular concept of doulos, slave, is obscured here because it's translated as Paul, a servant. Now, if you have an alternate translation, which I do, in the ESV, and at least that's good, you look down at your margin or at the bottom and it says, or slave, or Greek, bond servant or bond slave. And I remember John MacArthur mentioning that that's unfortunate that doulos itself is being translated in any other way other than slave. And I think he's right. It obscures the real concept of somebody being a slave of Jesus Christ. And we presume we know why, because of slavery itself, having many 
conceptions and presuppositions and baggage attached to it. And so one of the ways to sort of alleviate that is to be able to say, well, slave could also mean servant. The problem is the word diakonos, which is primarily translated as servant, is already a word that has all that kind of freight. And I've shared with you Romans 15:8. slave, I think, needs to remain slave. We don't have to put all the baggage on it that we're aware of in our culture or in past days. A slave in the New Testament time was someone who was serving, someone who was a slave, someone who was a bond slave and doing what they were told. And in, of course, Paul's context, he was a slave of Jesus Christ, a bond slave. Look at chapter 14, verse 18. Paul says that if you're not so hung up, verse 17, on the issue of eating and drinking as though that's the end-all and the be-all of how you express your liberty in Christ, instead what you ought to be focusing on is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then he says, whoever thus, and the next word, serves, is the word Doulos. It comes from our word doulos. It shouldn't be served there. It should be whoever thus is a slave to Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. You see, you're a, you're a slave to Christ if you want to focus in more on righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit rather than making the kingdom of God a matter of eating and drinking. That's what he's saying. If you're really a slave, if you're really a person who understands what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ, you're going to be more concerned about righteousness and peace and joy than eating and drinking. So that if you have to give it up for the sake of someone's wounded conscience, it's no big deal to you. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter about that stuff. It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm a slave of because that's what Christ, as my Savior, is maximizing. He's the Lord of those things. He's the Lord of the kingdom. And He says what the kingdom consists of. And it's not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy. And if I want to be a slave to Christ, I'm going to do the same thing. And if I do that, it says I'm acceptable to God and approved by men. You see, the way my mind works on these areas of Christian liberty is this. Faith, hope, and love. Those are my attitudes. And here are my actions. Here's the vehicle that drives those Christian virtues, that triad of virtues. Here's the vehicle that drives it. My servanthood and my slavery. That's it. If I'm a true servant, just like Christ was said to be, A servant, when he brought the circumcised and the uncircumcised together so that they might glorify God for his mercy, then I want to be that kind of servant too. You see, if this church in Rome and and this church, the Bible Church of Little Rock, if, if we were like them and if we had big issues among each other about food and drink or if it's something else, the anything in verse 21... If we had those big issues, we'd be focusing on those issues and not righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if we were focusing on eating and drinking or whatever else those liberties were that we were fighting each other against, we wouldn't be servants of one another. 
We wouldn't be slaves of Christ, emphasizing righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, and we wouldn't be acceptable to God, and we wouldn't be approved by men because we'd be fighting against each other, and we'd be saying things like this, I have the right to do this. I have the right to pursue this liberty. The Bible doesn't tell me that I can't do it. The Bible doesn't tell me that I should, but I have the liberty to do it. And you know, you might be right on some of those things. And you might be right that the Bible doesn't tell you that you can't do it. And you might be right that the Bible doesn't tell you that you're condemned if you do. But that's not all there is. That's not all the criteria. You have to ask yourself the question. Faith, hope, and love. And how does that drive me? How does that Christian triad of virtues drive me? It drives me because I'm a servant of faith, hope, and love. My slavery is faith, hope, and love. My slavery is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you choose to do something, that's your business. You you can pursue that. I'm not going to get hung up about that because you're free to do that. And I'm going to be very vigilant in my own life that if I'm doing anything for which several people are grieved at my doing it, I'm going to consider immediately giving it up. Why? Because I'm a servant. I'm a slave. I'm a slave to Christ. No big deal to me. It's no big deal if I give that up. It's not worth it. It's not worth it for the sake of the kingdom. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's my slavery. In fact, look at what Paul says about slavery in chapter 6, verse 22. Oh, I love this. Romans 6.22 But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, here's the fruit. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. And what is sanctification's end? Eternal life. That's all you get if you're a slave of God. That's all. You get to be His slave. You get fruit that leads to your changed life. And the result of your ultimately changed life is eternity. That's all you get. Did you know, by the way, that in one verse right there, Romans 6.22, that is salvation, sanctification, glorification, all in one verse right there. You're slaves of God. You've been set free from sin. That's salvation. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's glorification. Oh, what a wonderful thing. You know what? If I were able to emphasize that in my Christian life, I'd have less hang-ups about the gray areas in others and their lives. I would. Because I'm a slave. Paul says that about himself. He says in chapter 7, verse 6, We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve, that's the word slave, that's doulos, that's a form of it, so that we are slaves in the new way of the Spirit. You want to be a slave of the new way of the Spirit? He says in chapter 12, verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal, Be fervent in spirit. And then this phrase, serve the Lord. Be a slave to the Lord. Be a slave to the Lord. You know, if you put most of your time and effort in in maximizing your slavery to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you'd spend a whole lot less time thinking about other people's liberty. We spend so much time and energy thinking about other people and how they're not living 
what we perceive to be their necessary Christian life. We spend so much time and effort in doing that, and maybe in the analysis of our own life, we're spending far less time pursuing faith, hope, and love through the vehicle of our servanthood and our slavery. Thirdly, being a subordinate. Being a subordinate. I'm just giving you these S's so that you can remember them. Being a subordinate. And I cheated on this one. This is not in Romans, but it is Paul. Look at chapter 26 of Acts. Chapter 26. This is great. I've, I've put the English word subordinate. It's actually the word huperetes. Huperetes. And it sort of means a number of different things. could be a third-level galley slave, an under-rower. Somebody who was in the bottom of the boat rowing to keep the boat going. Could be a servant. Could be a minister. Could be translated even as officer in the book of Acts. Could be attendant or helper. All of those things. Notice this. This is what Paul says is a part of his testimony. And that's why I can use it even though it's not in the book of Romans because it's still about Paul. Acts chapter 26, verse 16. The Lord throws him down on the Damascus road. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And this is what Jesus said to Paul. This was going to be his ministry. This is his calling. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. That's our word. Subordinate. Uh, a third level galley slave, uh, an attendant, uh, a minister, and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The Lord Jesus calls the Apostle Paul, yes, to be a servant, yes, to be a diakonos, yes, yes, to be a slave, yes, to be a doulos, but also to be this kind of minister, and that is the lowest level of such a one, an attendant, a helper. That's what he says, Paul, I'm calling you to do this. And so Paul, knowing that, knowing his calling, goes right into Rome and he says, right here in this context of Romans 14 and 15, do you not see Christ as the servant bringing the two of you together? Well, then be servants. Do you not see that I am Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ for the sake of the gospel? Do you see that when you have infighting with one another, over these gray areas of the Christian life that can't be determined one way or the other, are good or bad, right or wrong, that you are to rather be slaves of one another? Don't you see that? I'm a bond slave of Christ. You're to be a slave. And Jesus Christ called me on that Damascus road to be an under rower, to be an attendant, to be a minister, a servant, a helper of the gospel. Can't you be one also? Isn't that what I've called you to do? Isn't that what God commissions you? Maybe not in the official sense, like I'm a minister of the gospel with a capital M, an apostle of God with a capital A, but every one of you, you're supposed to spend more time 
trying to live out faith, hope, and love through the vehicle of your service and your slavery and your subordination that you don't have time to pick fights with people about things that aren't black or white. And then fourthly, sacrificer. Sacrificer. That is, that is so beautiful in the New Testament. It's latria, liturgos. It's the, it's the Greek group of words out of which we get the word liturgy. It's both the concept of worship like we had this morning, like we're having now in the preaching of His Word. That's worship. But it's also service. Service. A lot of times translated that way. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 16. Right out of the context of what He says to the Roman Christians, both Jew and Gentile, about their liberties in Christ. He says, verse 16, God's given me grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God. This is that idea of latrion, worship, service, ministry, He says, that's what I am to you. And that's what you're to be to each other. Serving each other and ministering to each other. He says, for me, it is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that's Paul. That's that's his calling because he's he's a minister with a capital M. He's an apostle with a capital A. Guess what? Romans 12.1. That's us. That's what he's commanded all of us, does Paul. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, collectively the church, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That same word is in that verse. That's that's the kind of service we're to render to one another. That's our worship, to be a sacrifice. To say to somebody in their service and their ministry, even though it's different than mine, and they're doing certain liberties that I don't do in my own life, I'm going to sacrifice what I think I can do or should do on their behalf. I'm a servant, I'm a slave, I'm a subordinate, and I'm a sacrificer. I've told you before, when I've traveled abroad, I've met I've met very wonderful people who I have specifically seen give up their liberty because they were conscious of maybe somebody else who wasn't quite comfortable. I've seen it in this church and I've seen it in other churches where people say, look, I know I have the freedom to do this or that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sacrifice on their behalf because I believe they would be uncomfortable with it. Now, sometimes there might be dialogue. Sometimes there might even be some kind of friendly conversation about this or that and these areas of liberty. But the bottom line is, after you've discussed it, after you've worked it through, after you've prayed together, the bottom line is unity, even in the midst of your liberty, for the sake of maturity. That's, that's what it is. That's what we are. That's what we're called upon to do. That's what Paul said about himself in chapter 1, verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve, that's our word group, that's 
liturgos. That's what I'm doing. I'm serving with my spirit in the gospel of His Son. You say, well, how does He work that out in the area of His own liberty? What does He say? He says, I know, verse 14 of chapter 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. I can eat this meat. It's no big deal to me. It doesn't prick my conscience, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Paul's implying there, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put a stumbling block in somebody's, in somebody's way. Why? Because I serve with my spirit. This is, this is an issue of service and worship. And I'm not going to mess up somebody's worship. He says very, very clearly, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. He's clearly saying, I'm on the strong side, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You know, this this is so helpful to me because it shows me that if I focus on living out Christian virtues like faith, hope, and love, and I do it by the driving instrumentality of the vehicles of being a servant and a slave and a subordinate and a sacrificer, I'm going to be less likely to have hang-ups about my brothers and sisters in Christ and their uses of their liberty, and it's going to allow me to guard the abuse of my own liberties. That's what the Lord has called us to. He hasn't called us to do the kind of infighting that says, I've got the freedom to do it, and so I'm going to do it. And if I have that freedom, and if you don't like it, tough. Instead, love, faith, and hope will drive this vehicle. And the vehicle itself will be called service, slavery, subordination, and sacrifice. And God will be pleased when everyone is pursuing that very thing. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, You have challenged my own heart and the hearts I trust of our people by giving us a wonderful bridge between these two chapters. You've given us an opportunity to see and to savor what it means to have Christians getting along with each other in the gray areas of the Christian life. Oh, I pray, Father, that we will not be the kind of people who flaunt our liberty, who tread on the weaknesses of others, who show no thought for what they're doing and why. Oh, I pray that we would all see that the kingdom of God is not a matter of these gray areas, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I pray that love, faith, and hope, as Paul has expressed it here in our passage And that the very vehicle which drives these virtues home, both in attitudes and actions, are when I understand my servanthood and my slavery to Christ and my subordination of my own will and desires to the calling with which I've been called and to sacrifice, even 
sacrificing my own liberties for the sake of greater unity. Lord, bring these truths home to us and especially as we look at chapter 15 next time and we look at this preeminent example of Christ who did not seek to please Himself but to please You. May that be our hearts. We pray in His name. Amen.